Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Uh, it's a great week. Uh, we've got a ton of interesting stories to talk about. I did want to start off on a little bit of a sad note. Yesterday, Wednesday, um, Coolio died. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit before off mic. Um, this was very sad to me as a child of the 90s. I'm sure it was to you guys as well. Yeah, definitely. Um Coolio is a very specific celebrity like point yeah. in time, I think, for our general age range. Mm-hmm. Really remember that Dangerous Mind soundtrack. We were talking about that before. Yeah. Um, and I obviously I'm you know, I'm sort of no I'm not ashamed to find a legal hook or something. And I was trying to I vaguely remembered that Coolio was angry at Weird Al Yankovic for covering danger, uh, dangerous or uh, uh, gangsters paradise into Amish paradise, right? And he was like mad. He felt he wasn't consulted and all of this. And I got to, I just remember that because he won a Grammy for that song. Um, and then I, I remember him uh, like I have a sensory memory of him holding the Grammy and like being mad about it, talking to the assembled press. And I was like, oh, did anybody ever sue over this? Uh, oh, and, did they? And I don't, at least as far as I can tell, I don't think this ever happened. Now, Weird Al is a, uh, of like probably the most prolific parody artist that exists. And there are very clear carve outs that exist in intellectual property law for parody uses. So, um, so Coolio's lawyers probably talked him out of it. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, even if he had sued, it probably would have gone nowhere. But a man named Dan Ozzy or Otzi, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, uh, posted on Twitter after Coolio died, and he uh, included a screenshot of the time, uh, a time that he got to interview Coolio, and he asked about whether this, like, feud with Weird Al was settled and it's a screenshot. I we, we we can link it maybe. I don't know. Um, he, he said he asked him if he still had beef with Weird Al, and Coolio said, "I let that go so long ago. Let me say this: I apologized to Weird Al a long time ago, and I was wrong. Y'all remember that? Everybody out there who reads this shit, real men and real people should be able to admit when they're wrong, and I was wrong, bro. Come on, who the." F- am i bro he did parodies of michael jackson he did parodies of all kinds of people and i took offense to it because i was being cocky and shit and being stupid and i was wrong and i should have embraced that shit and went with it i listened to it a couple years after and it's actually funny as shit it's one of those things where i made a wrong call and nobody stopped me that's one thing I'm still upset about. My management at the time. <laughs> Somebody should have stopped me from making that oh statement God. because it was dumb. And I think it hurt me a little bit. It made me seem stupid. Oh, uh, wow. I, Look at I that had never seen this. I had never seen this interview with Coolio, and I found it so endearing um, and so... It is endearing. You know, uh, humanizing. <laughs> because does- celebrities are so reluctant to say when they've like oh, done sure. something bad, especially if it doesn't involve like, especially if it's something somewhat trivial, like 
you know, who has rights to a song or something, not like a violent crime. I wonder if this incident will be at all referenced in that new Daniel Radcliffe um, Weird Al biopic. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, this was a bit of a feud. It was one of the better known ones about a Weird Al song, so. Yeah, I think it's just a little dust up. But anyway, um, uh, rest in peace, Coolio. You brought us uh, many great memories, um, but... uh, we do have an awesome show for you guys this week. Um, Amber and I had a really interesting conversation with Chris Villani about um, a story we've talked about before, which was a the interesting case of a Massachusetts state judge who is alleged to have helped an undocumented immigrant escape arrest by federal agents in her courtroom. And there were criminal charges brought against her in this matter. Those charges were dropped last week. And it sort of brought into focus the political nature of this case and raised broader questions about the political decision-making at the Department of Justice, um, which has obviously been very buzzy, right, Amber? Yeah, Absolutely. It was great to talk to Chris about this, who's been following it closely. He helps break it all down and talks not only about that very interesting singular incident, but also just sort of the broader implications about how things can really flip-flop depending on who's in control at DOJ and Mm -hmm. what that really means for the legal system. So we really get into it with him. I did want to mention one other thing before we start getting into some of our top news today, and that is that... um, Summer's over, guys. We are back to a new Supreme Court term that starts up next week. Um, we are. Not I didn't agree to that at all. By the I way, know. I, well, I know. Yeah. As a firmly fall person, I'm thrilled, but I know I'm in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. but I, I wanted to mention it just to say we're not getting into anything Supreme Court related this week. But our sister show, The Term, does a great preview episode that everybody should look out for in their feeds if you're not following The Term head on into you know whatever podcast subscriber you use and, and follow that show so you'll be ready for all the big action that's going to come. It looks like it's shaping up to be another blockbuster term this year. I cannot believe the Supreme Court is already back. It seems like yesterday the term just ended. But Amber, let's get going with some news here today. I know you have our first story. I do. I have a story for us today that's about big banks being fined big money, and it's all because of texting. So I kind of love that little fact pattern. Relatable. Yeah. So this week we had federal regulators um, saying that a bunch of major Wall Street firms have agreed to pay $1.8 billion in penalties for record-keeping failures related to employees who are using personal messaging apps to discuss business matters. Listen, I'm 37 years old. I got a phone when I was a senior in high school, I think. So for my adult, my entire adult life, half my life, more than half my life now, I, uh, I've i been a texter. We all text. We're all on here. You know, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't have any legal liability from it. Um, or, to your uh, knowledge. Well, to my knowledge. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know... You can tell I write about the law because I I hedge myself. So well, what is going on with the with the sort of texting here? There's clearly one point eight billion dollars worth of liability for these banks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
Regulators had conducted an industry-spanning probe into bankers texting on the job through personal texts or apps like WhatsApp. Um, those That's the kind of universe we're in. And this mm-hmm. probe went all the way back to 2018. The feds found that employees across many firms, including supervisors and senior executives, so it wasn't just the rank and file, that they routinely used personal mob- mobile messaging apps to discuss official business. That is disregarding company policies that forbid them from doing just that. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission levy fines as part of settlements with uh, units of 11 financial firms. Um, it's all name brand ones. It's people, it's it's groups that you would know, Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs. That's kind of the universe we're in here. And under these settlements, Bank of America is on the hook for the highest penalty. It's $225 million. And a lot of the other banks are shouldering pretty hefty fines as well. We all text a lot, as Alex said. Um, (laughs) And frankly, a lot of us, I would imagine almost everyone does text about work stuff. Yeah. I mean, even us in this podcast, like we've certainly like text each other about a note on a show or whatever. So So do we have a $225 million (laughs) fine in our future? Like what... What, yeah. we, what went awry here? So the reason that this is important is that there are a lot of strict record-keeping requirements in the banking and finance industries. And talking shop via text meant that the firms fell to archive um, what the federal government describes as innumerable communications that were actually legally required to be logged. So under SEC and CFTC rules, investment banks are required to keep copies of all business-related communications that employees send and receive. These archived messages can be pretty important in terms of value for enforcement regulators. Um, Without them, a ton of stuff could be hidden. Anytime there's an allegation, there's not as much of a record to go back to if some of these messages are in fact deleted or sent on an encrypted app and therefore inaccessible. So SEC Chair Gary Gensler had this to say, finance ultimately depends on trust. By failing to honor their record keeping and books and records obligations, the market participants we have charged today have failed to maintain that trust. If finance does depend on trust, I'm so glad someone finally said it. Um, Yeah, uh, I mean, that one's a a little anodyne, right? It's like, okay, you're breaking our trust. But I also have a quote from the CFTC commissioner. Yes. Christy Goldsmith Romero. Uh, Her words were a bit more choice, I'd say. Here's what she had to say. The conduct found serves as a red flag about Wall Street's culture. She went on to say the culture was designed to, quote, Keep bank compliance and regulators in the dark. Change can only happen if the bank's C-suite establishes a culture of compliance over evasion. Okay, well, so how did the banks react to all of this? Because I can't imagine they're, you know, super on board with how this is all characterized, etc. No one likes to be said that they're evading. (laughs) Um, Evading regulations is not how you want your industry portrayed. Well, yeah, and as we kind of were, we were being a little jokey about it, but I mean... And I'm not even talking about these people specifically. I'm talking about people in general. Like, people talk about things that happen at work over text or WhatsApp or whatever it is. So I am curious to know how the banks, uh, you know, were, like, received this information. It's actually a bit unusual um, because as part of this investigation, all the firms admitted to actual wrongdoing here. 
often you'll hear a settlement or some fines levied and, and agreed to by the parties where the people that have to pay the fines will say, yeah, we're settling this to end this lengthy investigation, get it out of our hair or end yeah. a lengthy lawsuit. But we didn't do anything wrong. We're not admitting to anything. And that's not what happened here. They said, like, yeah, I mean, we're messing this up. And what they've done is they've begun to implement improvements to their compliance protocols to make it a little more in line with what you were saying, Alex, that people do use these kind of things. So they have mm -hmm. to find ways to accommodate that, but still comply with record keeping requirements. So the settlements themselves require the hiring of outside consultants to conduct basically like communications, audits, like compliance reviews to figure out what to do next. But many of the banks have also said they've already rolled out compliant text and chat platforms that are specific to their industry to avoid this issue moving forward. So I think what we're going to see here is they're, they're paying a lot of money. They've admitted this is a problem, but we're going to see a whole new way for people in that finance world to chat with each other using technology that does, in fact, meet records requirements. Look, I'm sure that the Goldman Sachs employees are excited to have a company-sponsored text messaging platform <laughs> that they can talk to each other about the various <laughs> leveraging and uh I'd love to know what the app all, is all named. types of opportunistic investment they're doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I'd love to name. know what the app is named though because I, there's a lot of puns that we can think of that merge like texting and bank stuff. Yeah, so. I've always been really jealous of the fact that like it it boggles my mind that there's an app called Cash App. Now that's a payment <laughs> app, not about finance so much. Anyway, that's a distraction. Uh We'll keep an eye on that, of course, as that sort of, um, you know, reverberates through the finance industry. Haley, uh, I know you have a story as well. Um, what are we talking about next? We are talking about student loans. So still and... talking about banks, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, it, certainly. Keeping keeping with uh, the theme here today. So we look, we knew this day was coming. The lawsuits have finally started rolling in over President Biden's loan forgiveness plan. Um, earlier this week, a lawyer with the Pacific Legal Foundation sued an Indiana federal court, and he's claiming that forgiving his loans will actually make his tax burden way worse. Um, and then earlier today, which is, of course, we're recording again on a Thursday, um, six Republican states filed another suit alleging that the federal government is overstepping its authority. We knew this was coming, as you said. I mean, anytime there's a controversial big action by the government, usually lawsuits roll in shortly thereafter. I do want to get into the two separate arguments, but before we turn to that, can we just sort of recap what President Biden did with that loan forgiveness plan? Sure. So Biden announced this plan in August, and basically, the highlights are that borrowers who make less than $125,000 a year individually can get up to $10,000 of their federal outstanding loans canceled. Pell Grant recipients, on the other hand, can get up to $20,000 forgiven. Um, notably, no high-income individual or household. The top 5% of incomes will benefit from the program. That's according to the White House. Um, and the White House also said that if all eligible borrowers take advantage of this, that's about 43 million people who could see relief. And the full balance of their debt will be canceled for about 20 million of those borrowers. All right. So you're already in 
and as you said, I mean, we're we're recording on Thursday afternoon as we always do. There will probably be more lawsuits that kind of flow in here. But as we sit here today, we're talking about a couple different tracks of litigation. And I want to talk first about the actual state government, state attorneys general, I assume, um, that have challenged this. Which states have sued and what are they alleging about this program? Or well, it's not even a program. This 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 policy, I suppose. Yeah, they do call it a program in some of these suits, so that's okay. fair. You know, that's fair. Yeah. Um, the suit was filed by Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, South Carolina, and my home state, Nebraska. They filed in Missouri federal court and say the plan needs to be immediately blocked before those student loan balances start getting canceled. Now, specifically, the states are criticizing the measure as rewarding well-off individuals in the midst of a looming economic crisis. They called it economically unwise, downright unfair. We saw lots of those takes on uh, social media, of course. Um, And they're calling it yet another example in a long line of unlawful regulatory actions from the Biden administration. As far as their legal argument goes, the states say there is no statute that permits Biden to unilaterally relieve millions of individuals from their obligation to pay loans that they voluntarily assumed. Biden's plan, they said, is premised on a 2003 law. That's the HEROES Act, which you might remember was designed to ease the burden of student debt for military members who served in a war or individuals who lived in a federally designated disaster area. That said, you know, across the board, debt cancellation was inconceivable to Congress when it was signing off on that act, according to the states. And Biden's plan isn't even remotely tailored to address the effects of the pandemic, which would be required by the act. Um, And they're just saying it's the epitome of unlawful and arbitrary agency action. Okay, that one makes a lot of sense in terms of these are the arguments that have sort of been in the ether since this plan was announced. Um, But what about the lawyer you talked about before? His argument that his tax burden would be higher kind of caught my attention. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that lawyer's name is Frank Garrison, and he alleged that he will owe more than $1,000 in additional state taxes when the government automatically cancels a portion of his debt. And he said that's because he lives in a state that taxes loan cancellation as income. So a couple key details on Garrison's situation here. He says he received a Pell Grant, and that is uh, need-based federal financial aid for students. And so that means that under Biden's plan, he would get $20,000 in loan forgiveness. But because he's a lawyer for a nonprofit, he's already enrolled in the federal public service loan program established during the Bush administration. And under that plan, the amount that he's paying is tied to his income. And he is allowed to make payments for just 10 years and then have the rest of that debt forgiven. So his 10 years of payments are up in just four more years. Mm -hmm. So the crux of his argument here, it's a little we're you know, getting into some weeds here, but he says... His monthly payments right now are low enough that it actually makes more financial sense for him to finish off his payments for the next four years and then have the rest of his loans forgiven. That makes more sense to him than taking the lump sum forgiveness now and then paying a grand in state tax. 
Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting and in, like in a legal theory kind of way, because I know that when Biden rolled out this plan, people anticipated that lawsuits would bubble up and now they have. But there was a question about standing. And I know, listen, I know I said this. I I said this in the group chat yesterday and everybody was like, Alex, don't talk about standing. This is this is dumb. Um, but uh, it is pretty interesting for this purpose where like this guy is now trying to say, like, I am incurring a tax burden. And like you say, it's a little convoluted, Haley, the idea that you treat forgiven debt as income and then you get taxed on it. And then I have standing to sue on that. Um, and, you know, we don't this this was only just recently filed. We'll see if it if it holds up to scrutiny. But um a lot of interesting legal issues at play. Uh, what has the government said? I mean, I I know that they almost certainly anticipated litigation when they rolled out this policy. Um, but what um, what has been the early line on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, like you said, they were prepared for this. Uh, but these suits are so fresh. Um, as far as I've seen so far, the Biden administration hasn't issued any statements addressing these specific legal arguments. It's safe for us to say they disagree, probably, but uh, we'll have to just keep an eye on those case dockets for exactly how they'll be fighting these. Federal prosecutors have agreed to drop criminal charges against a Massachusetts state judge accused of impeding the arrest of an undocumented immigrant in her courtroom in 2018. The DOJ's decision to step back turned up the heat on an already fraught case, with some attorneys fearing that quickly shifting political winds have played an outsized role in the matter from start to finish. Joining us now to walk us through the case and its fallout is Law 360's Boston Courts reporter, Chris Villani. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Always so good to have you on. Uh, this is a super interesting case, and we have talked about it before. I do just want to refer people to um, when this sort of uh, was at the First Circuit, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, we talked about this last December in episode 227, which dives deeper into the facts. But, um, Chris, I do think you can get us a little bit reacquainted here just on the basic, uh, you know, scene setting. How did this state judge come under the eye of the feds through this immigration proceeding? Sure. So it dates back to events from a day in April in 2018 and Newton District Judge Shelley Joseph was on the bench. There was a proceeding in front of her involving someone who uh, was a, a suspected undocumented immigrant. ICE agents had come to her courtroom and she found out the ICE agents were there. She asked them to leave and go out front and wait in the lobby. Then things got a little shady, you might say. Uh, we don't have in Massachusetts state courts court reporters, like people typing. There's just a recording. So mm -hmm. she asked that the recording be stopped. 
there was a 50 or so second break in which she was speaking with prosecutor and defense attorney. They went back on the record. Charges against this guy were dismissed. It turns out they, there was a mistaken identity for sort of the underlying criminal charge that had him there. And then she allowed him to leave through a lockup downstairs and go out the back door. So he evaded capture from the immigration agents who were there to bring him in. About a year later, after looking into it, there was no action from the um, the Commission on Judicial Conduct in Massachusetts. So the DOJ started looking into it. And under former U.S. Attorney Andy Lelling brought an obstruction of justice charge against both Judge Joseph and her court officer, a guy named Wesley McGregor. Yeah, I think that's where we had left it um, when we talked about this on the show before. It was just this fascinating development. But, you know, we kind of hit a standstill to see what would happen with those charges. And we did get a new development last week. The prosecutors decided not to proceed with the case. Tell us how that happened. How did we get there? Sure. Well, it's been quite the winding road, right? And this was brought yeah. in 2019. Like a lot of things, it was slowed because of the pandemic. This was not a high profile or a high uh, priority, I should say, criminal prosecution it was very high profile, not a high priority because it's not a violent criminal. You don't have a defendant in custody, et cetera. So a lot of things were pushed off. Meanwhile, there was an interlocutory appeal to the First Circuit where Judge Joseph essentially argued that judicial immunity shields her from these charges. The First Circuit disagreed. They punted on the question of whether judicial immunity could keep her from being convicted. But they said, you can't just say, I'm a judge, therefore I can't be charged. So they okay. sent the case back to district court. Then it sort of went into uh, what one lawyer described to me as a black hole. It just went away. And it did seem like her defense team was trying to run out the clock, first of all, on the Trump administration, because the <laughs> right. guidance on ICE courthouse arrest is dramatically different now under the Biden administration. But the U.S. attorney in Rhode Island, another layer of this, the U.S. attorney, the new U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, when she was district attorney in Boston, brought a suit trying to end the practice of ICE courthouse arrest. So she was recused. She couldn't oversee the matter. So the U.S. attorney in Rhode Island, the Biden appointee there, ended up dismissing the case against Judge Joseph in exchange. She has to submit to an investigation from the uh, Commission on Judicial Conduct and stipulate to some certain facts, basically the, the events of the day, what she did on the bench. And it's now going to be up to the CJC to decide what sort of discipline she'll face. They're going to handle it that way as opposed to a federal criminal prosecution. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a very you know, able summation of of what was going on. But sort of more broadly, you wrote a feature for us this week on the way that both the the bringing of the charges and now the dismissal of the charges or rather the dropping of the charges, I should say, not 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 dismissal, but the 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 dropping of the charges kind of reverberated and it it gets pulled back to this topic that has been obviously in vogue uh, for many years now, which is the idea that the DOJ is overly politicized. Um, what are you hearing from attorneys who have been following the case? Because it was brought in a very politically fraught climate. Mm -hmm. Then just like you say, was kind of on the back burner. What are people talking about here in terms of like charging judges, you know, in, in, in terms of these uh, in, in this specific fact pattern? Well, I, I think even broader than charging judges, it's the unease with the idea that what's different in this case 
this year as opposed to last year. The yeah. facts have not changed. The There's disputes among the facts, of course, but the facts as alleged and as charged in the indictment have not changed. Mm-hmm. The legal theory has actually been affirmed by the First Circuit. And unlike other instances, and we've talked about this in, in different cases on this on this podcast, but unlike other instances where you say, okay, prosecutors are really pushing the boundary of applicable criminal law here. Varsity Blues is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. This, from a legal standpoint, is a pretty straightforward application of the federal obstruction statute. There, there's not a lot of gray area here or, or really pushing the boundary. So what changed? The only thing that changed is administration. And that, I think, leaves a lot of people uneasy. The idea that you have the same set of facts, the same applicable law, the theory's been upheld by the First Circuit pretrial, and the case was brought and dismissed, with the only thing changing being who is in charge of the DOJ and who's in charge in the White House. That's not how criminal statutes are supposed to work. That's not how the law is supposed to work. It's supposed to be the facts and the applicable law that decide whether Mm -hmm. or not somebody gets charged or whether a charge gets dismissed. And it's not a situation, we've had a few of these in Massachusetts this year, where there was some sort of new evidence uh, or, or some big change in the law, Supreme Court ruling that all of a sudden invalidated the legal theory. There was nothing like this. So it's hard to look at it, whether you were someone who was uh, in favor of the charges against Judge Joseph or not, and not admit that, well, if you're going to say it was political to bring the case, it was probably just as political to drop it. Because otherwise, what changed? Why not let the jury at some point decide on uh, an indictment that a grand jury handed up? Yeah, it's we we always have some level of prosecutorial discretion, right? Yeah. But it, it does feel more fraught here where, I mean, you said earlier in describing what happened that some of this was waiting out an administration. Um, so you could imagine a scenario where this just, these kind of things flip-flop depending on who's in power at DOJ. Yeah, and, and I think that was really, well, there were a couple of legal strategies here that, that I think were in play. One was arguing judicial immunity and and that interlocutory appeal. And that also had the product of running out the clock on the Trump administration, yeah. right? Yeah. Because I mean, you, you are, you are, you know, igniting new, uh, yeah. you know, lanes of litigation, all of that, that, that takes up time. Yes. And, and I will say, um, Judge Sorokin, Leo Sorokin, who had this case, he didn't seem like he was in a hurry. Uh, I think <laughs> push come to shove, it went to trial. He would have overseen it as he does any trial. He's a good judge, very smart judge, but it didn't seem like he was in a hurry. I think he was perfectly content to see if the two sides could work it out before it <laughs> got to that standpoint. But that was a big part of it in terms of just the legal strategy is just trying to get to a more favorable administration because the facts, a lot of them were very good facts for the government, right? I'm Turning off the recording is a violation of, of, of what she's supposed to do. You're not supposed to go off the record like that just on a whim. Um, this also, this particular individual, the who was picked up several weeks later, this wasn't your only crime he committed was entering the country illegally, and now he's working 70 hours a week and trying to feed his family and doing all the right things. He's a drug dealer. So there, there were a lot of bad facts here that if this did get to trial, it might have been an uphill climb, as it usually is for criminal defendants anyway, um, yeah. for, for Judge Joseph here. So the the strategy of of trying to negotiate with a more favorable administration may have been the best and only play here. So I, good job by by Tom Hoops and by her attorneys. 
But if you're looking at this from an outside perspective, you're saying, well, the political winds are the only thing that seems to have dictated the rise and fall of this case. And that's problematic. That is tricky to think about, you know, this is just a political wins thing, but politics aren't going away. I mean, that's just a fact right now. We're in a very that's divided true. nation. Politics, politics are persistent as it turns out. <laughs> they sure are. But even more right now, right? We're in a really divided nation where it does <laughs> yeah. seem like we can have big shifts in policy, especially around immigration. I mean, that's a hot button issue and has been for a long time. So what are the people you've talked to think about whether or not this is a one-off, was this a unicorn of a situation, or are they anticipating this kind of thing to happen more often? Well, the very specific aspect of charging a judge for something that that he or she does while on the bench, that's so unusual that it, it seems like it's unlikely to repeat. The broader point, though, about politics influencing charging decisions that seems like it's something that is at least to some extent here to stay, right? Particularly around something like immigration. I mean, we're seeing it also in different parts of the country with, with abortion, but more so in Massachusetts. Um, the the immigration issue has now come even more center stage because of Ron DeSantis flying the uh, plane load of uh, Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard. That's already spawned a civil suit here. And the DOJ is looking into it. Now, if there are criminal charges brought, theoretically, I, I'm skeptical it would happen, but let's say there are criminal yeah, charges right. brought by the, the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts against the governor of Florida, who then could become the president of the United States in a couple of years. It, it strange credulity to imagine his administration would continue. This. It, it, it's And even if he doesn't, a Republican administration is just unlikely to continue that sort of a prosecution. So you have the same sort of thing with an issue rising and falling just based on politics. So what attorneys here have told me is they would rather the DOJ just not wade into this at all, right? And regardless of the administration, because you set yourself up for the type of case that the next administration could simply undo. And every time that happens in both directions, bringing the charges and the dismissal of the charges, it just dings the credibility of what's supposed to be an independent law enforcement entity that makes charging decisions based upon facts and applicable law and nothing else. We know that's a dream, but at the very least, we want to keep that dream somewhat alive. And every time this happen, happens, it's just going to be another knock to their credibility. Chris, uh, you do such a great job covering uh, that court for us, and this is no exception, of course. Uh, fascinating case and great coverage. Thank you for uh, rejoining Pro Se to uh, talk us through it. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Always happy to join the Marvel Cinematic Law Universe. Yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> bro. Yes. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> We like to end our show with something offbeat, and as usual, happy to have a pop culture tie-in for us with this segment. Haley, tell us all about it. So last week, we talked about Adnan Syed's case, and this week, we are talking about another more lighthearted true crime story that gripped the nation. <laughs> Anna Sorokin, a.k.a. Anna Delvey, is fighting with her former attorney for allegedly refusing to turn over files and personal property to her new attorneys. Okay. I uh, First of all, 
I respect your pre- preparation for the segment. I think that the connection between the Syed case and and Anna Delvey is like pretty tenuous. But <laughs> you're right. <laughs> they did it both is, grip the is. nation and they are both true crime. I they respect are both that true connection. Crime. Yes. Um, so we, well, we live in major media markets. I was about to say we all live in New York. Uh, Haley, that's not true for you. But you are, we, we live in major metropolitan areas and we work in the media. So like Anna Delvey, we all know about this. Can you give us a brief uh, sort of well, primer? Before you do that, I think I should say that like the key term here that might make people who don't know the name remember what this is. This was that TV show Inventing Anna on oh, Netflix. Yes. So Sorry. that's yes. what Thank the you, miniseries Amber. was about. And I will admit, guys, I want to say this right up top. I didn't watch Inventing Anna because every preview I saw of it, the accent was so distracting <laughs> for Anna. And I know that I watched some you know, clips of the real person. I know the accent's very true. I couldn't get past it. But yeah, that maybe is why, Haley, you should explain who she is exactly and why an accent's even involved. For sure. And <laughs> yes. I, too. So full disclosure, I started inventing Anna and did not finish it. Maybe for the <laughs> same reason. But so I watched every episode. Maybe I should have prepped this, but okay. that's great. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, it doesn't matter. OK, go in, ahead. in any event. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Alex. No, so, no, no, no. So Sorokin pretended to be a German heiress and really was, you know, gallivanting about New York and scammed her way through the socialite scene to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, She ended up being sentenced to four to 12 years in prison in May 2019 after she was convicted of conning lenders and hotels and restaurants and a whole slew of others. Um, And now what we're talking about today is she has beef with her former attorney, Audrey A. Thomas. And Thomas represented her in immigration court proceedings and in her criminal case appeal. That attorney actually talked to Law360 reporter Tracy Reed this week, and she did not hold back. Here's a quote to get us going. I'm so f***ing tired of Anna Sorokin. I'm just over her. (laughs) that is exactly how I felt about the accent Um, but that is a hilarious quote for an attorney to give a reporter Um, I want to talk more about the interview but maybe we need a little more background about like how the attorney started beefing with her like before we kind of get into what what else she told us at Law360 definitely because I think a lot of us uh even those of us who didn't uh, tune out in the middle of the Netflix miniseries, a lot of us perhaps tuned out of some of the court proceedings after her conviction. So the most recent stuff is Sorokin stopped working with Thomas in February. Then in July, a New York state judge ordered Thomas to transfer all of Sorokin's files to her new attorneys. But Sorokin says that some material is still missing. Her new lawyer, who also talked to Law360, said Thomas hasn't given any credible rationale for withholding those materials, and it's hampering Sorokin's ability to appeal her criminal conviction. Those materials allegedly include digital audio recordings of Sorokin's immigration court hearings, and then also some of her personal belongings. So Sorokin wants the court (laughs) to find Thomas in both civil and criminal contempt for withholding these. I have so many thoughts, um, I, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but it is very funny that, well, first of all, this is, you know, she's like a scammer, whatever it is, but she is a person who 
like kind of like got like she founded her deception almost purely on vibes. She kind of just like yeah. showed up at some clubs and bars in New York and like by the ch- by the charm of her personality or whatever, like whatever, convince people of X, Y or Z. And it's very funny to me that her former attorney says, I'm so tired of her. I'm just over her. And I can imagine some men or some women in some club that she was in in Soho in 2017 saying like the exact same thing. Like, Anna? Oh, I'm so over her. I don't even know. But it's her actual legal counsel. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. Now, her former lawyer, Thomas, um, what does she say about this? So she told Law 360 that she's repeatedly told Sorokin's new attorney that she does not have what they're looking for. She's even hired a lawyer to fight this this whole ordeal. She said, uh, notably, that she also has no reason to harm Sorokin and actually really admired her. Here's another good quote from her interview with Law 360. Yeah, this is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) I loved Anna at the time. I helped her because, you know, I admired this young lady. She has done some horrible things, allegedly. But she also has, I thought, a heart of gold in terms of she tries to help people a lot. She She surrounds herself with people who can't do for themselves. And I admire that quality about her. (laughs) Alex, that's that's exactly what you were talking about a second ago, where people just seem to be sucked in by her charm. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and all, well, that, and also, I, this is just one of the most lawyerly quotes I've ever seen. Uh, the idea of like half talking, half hedging, sort <laughs> right. of asserting yes. things at the time, guarding I against them at the time. I thought, yeah. uh, you know, I think alleged, you know, whatever. We do it on the podcast as well. Um, so, you know, whatever. We do. Uh, But yes. Uh, So what else is going on, Haley? So Sorokin had said in the court filings that Thomas accused her of only wanting her court transcripts to market her brand, which I love. (laughs) Um, And that Thomas has also called her profane names in comments to media outlets. LOL. Yeah. Uh, Well, sure. (laughs) So Thomas didn't deny those comments. (laughs) Uh, she said she's not going to change her position, but, quote, the only thing greater than ingratitude is the demand for gratitude. God bless her. Wow. Wow, wow. Well, yeah. um, I think I can safely say I'd encourage all of our listeners to go to the website to, if nothing else, read this story and get yeah. a full slate of quotes from the attorney. <laughs> this is certainly just as juicy as you'd want some postscript to uh, a pretty hyperbolic um, Netflix <laughs> documentary series to be. Um, it's so a good really stuff. interesting one. So that'll wrap up our show for this week. I want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest this week, Chris Villani, and our contributing reporters, John Hill, Anna Scott Farrell, and Tracy Reed. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a written review, five stars, that helps other people find our show. And like I said before, you can read more about everything we've talked about on today's show on our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. 
Thanks and see you back here next week.